States, the founding of the great republic based not on slogans such as democracy but on the idea of limited government which is far more important than whatever you whatever meaning you may attach to the word democracy on the schedule you see that our first uh, lecture today is by Daryl Shun, but the title is to be announced. There is a reason for that. The reason is that we are living in extremely uncertain times. And from day to day the world may just change. It has changed tremendously since last summer. And it probably will change just as significantly during the rest of this summer. So by the fall, it will be a different world, at least in the financial sense. So, Daryl was kind enough to say that he will keep us up to date. And this is, I still don't know what your title is, but you, I let him announce his own title. It may be a shocker, I'm fully prepared for that. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. Daryl is an old friend of mine. I don't remember, was it 10 years ago or longer that we first met in California? And then we've met several times. He has been an ardent supporter of Gold Standard University. I might say that the uh, Gold Standard University life would not exist without the constant encouragement which I got from Daryl and Martha. They, they've been a tower of strength to me. Uh, there were many, many times when it looked very discouraging and I was about to give up. This is another time like that, but I have an open mind about that. I'm just trying to say to you that I'm very greatly indebted to the Shum. So let's give Martha and Daryl Thank you very much and I, without any further ado, I ask you to present your <clears throat> unannounced talk. I thought this morning, in fact I, I, I gave a title to the talk this morning, and I, I'm going to call it The Greatest Discovery of Our Time. And it's not a discovery in the sense of Marie Curie's discovery of gender activity, or the physics, or the innumerable advances that humankind has made in our modern times. This is a discovery that I think will be written down in retrospect about our era. Because it's like at the end of a movie. Only until when the movie is over do you really know what that movie was about. And the movie may have gone in a certain direction and suddenly at the end it shifts and you understand what had been going on all the time before. But until that moment, you didn't know. There was a book uh, published in 1997 uh, called The Great Way, Great, Great Way, Price Way. And um, it was an extraordinary book. They talked about the cycles of Western history, how they go through periods of quiet, nothing happened, very stable, like the feudal age was one such period. And then it was succeeded by the Renaissance. And then the Renaissance was succeeded by the Enlightenment. But these periods of stability, were each and every one of them interrupted by a period of what he called rising prices. He said, what happened out of the blue? Totally, nobody knows why. Prices will start rising after a period of stability. And these price waves would take 80 to 120 years. And at the end of every price wave, it would end in economic collapse. Absolute collapse. 
These price waves would be accompanied by crises, for example, the Black Plague or the Hundred Years' War. And these, these price waves would separate large epochs of stability. And the collapse of the price wave, when they finally collapsed, it would give birth to another era. This, um, he referred to our present era, not really the present era, but the last era of stability as the era of Victorian England. And what happened is in 1896, he said prices started rising again. These price waves last between 80 to 120 years. And if the prices started rising in 1896, we are pretty much towards the end. And pretty much close to the collapse that always happens at the end of the price wave. He also said that this wave of change is greater in amplitude than any change we've been in before. We're, in a sense, in the mother of all paradigm shifts. And this is where we are today. So what I wanted to call this, not the era of Victorian England, which he referred to it as, I'm going to call this the era where bankers stole money. Where the bankers stole savings. Because I would like to assert that Victorian England would never have achieved the supremacy and its imprint on the last 300 years had it not been for its banking system. Prior to 1694, there was no banking system as we know it today. That was the year the Bank of England was created. All right? Martha and I were so fascinated by it that in Christmas, we went, we, we went, we went to the UK for Christmas. And we stayed on Threadneedle Street, a Threadneedle Hotel, right across from the Bank of England. We wanted to see it up close. And we took that tour they have through the bank. It's a very short tour. But I can say we probably looked at that little tour differently than most people who go through the Bank of England tour. We looked at the creation of money. We saw what happened, how they did it. And really, the truth of the matter was this. And I, I, that's how I would like to frame it. Before the Bank of England was created, before the first real central bank, that Bank of Sweden was created a few years before, but I don't think it was a central bank in the sense that England is a central bank, which really changed banking, which changed money, which then became banking. First, it had to change money. And how did it do it? Prior to the creation of the Bank of England, money was money. Money had developed over the millennium, and it was basically gold and silver, because that's what people trusted. It was a storehouse of value, you could exchange it, people would debase it, but that's what money was. Money existed. Money was. After the Bank of England, money was never going to be the same, at least up until the present. And what they did was this. They substituted money. Before, money was, like I said, gold and silver. It had value. What happened when the Bank of England came into practice? Time entered the equation of money for the first time. In fact, I would say that when time came in, money flew out the window. Real money. Because what they did is they substituted credit for money. And credit is not money at all. What am I saying is this credit is no more money than power is control. And this would not have happened had we not had two forces come together in an alliance that had never existed before. Government and banks. Before 1694, there was no, never a word. There was not, not, not such a thing called bankers. You could say banker, no one would know what you meant. Before 1694, the people who became bankers were money lenders. And they made a living loaning gold that they had and charging interest on the loaning of that asset. All right? Limited amount, very valuable asset. They loan it out, they make their money on it. Well, what I consider the greatest discovery of this last era was the discovery that they could cheat everybody with a new form of money. And this is what they did. They came in and 
instead of gold or silver coinage, you had pieces of paper. All right? When Martha and I were going to the Museum of Bank of England, they talked about it. Okay? It was gold and silver before coins. After that, they began issuing pieces of paper. Stamps, colored things on it, little letters. All right? Well, the English are a very, very creative lot. And some of them started cutting up their own pieces of paper and putting stamps in. Well, the professor talked about the defenestration. I think the first defenestration of fiat money came with executing the people who did this on their own. All right? Woo. Everybody goes, wow. One day in town, not mine anymore. All right? So what happened is, this was successful. But what did these people do? How did they do it? And why did they do it? And how did it become so powerful that it supplanted real money in the entire world? When you look at it, it becomes very, very clear. Very, very clear. Governments have always wanted power. That's what they want, power. And generally, it's power over others. It's ambition. They don't care if it's your brother, your mother, your father, kings. Ever since time immemorial, they wanted to take over the kingdom next to them. Then the one next to them, then the one next to them, then the one next to them. Insatiable power. Bankers, money lenders, it's profit, it's clear. They're like us, entrepreneurs, business people. We want to get a return, we want to make money. But no one had figured out this game before. This was brilliant. This was absolute brilliance. And that's why I call this the greatest discovery of the last 200 years. And when this era is over, and it's going to be over very soon, people are going to look back and see the impact of what was actually done. What started, what became accepted as real, and until the end, was believed to be real until it was revealed for what it was, basically a fraud. What happened was this. The bankers, I'm sure the bankers did, went to the King, King William of England who had huge debts over his war with France. He's all, you know, he was French, trying to conquer his relatives in France, using England as a base. Huge debts, all right? And they're always in debt. Kings were always in debt, having to go to the money lender, taking out the money, getting, you know, indebting them even more, you know? And they went to him and they said, this, this is, you know, both of us are not really getting anywhere this way, all right? We've got a better way. And what they did was this, is that, what the king got was the ability to wage unlimited war ad infinitum, as long as he could pay for it in the future. He could raise an army in the present moment on credit, conquer the next kingdom. He had more money now. His, I mean, his brother over there in the next kingdom was sitting there with the money blenders trying to scrounge up some money to knock him off. He didn't have credit. King William King William could raise an army on the cover, and nobody else could. In return for what? Because the bankers, in return for allowing him that privilege, got the privilege to coin money in England. Coinage was now removed from the people, from the king, handed over to the bankers. Why? Because what did the king want except to wage war? And the bankers money lenders, who previous to this used to make a living loaning gold and charging interest on loaning that gold, were now enabled to loan paper, not gold, and charge interest on the loaning of that paper. This is absolutely brilliant. I mean, in the Middle Ages, the big thing in the, in the feudal era in, in, in Europe was uh, al alchemy, the, uh, the attempt to change base metals into gold. A lot of time, a lot of thought was put into how can we change lead or you know some brass of gold? Because if you did, you'd be as rich as Croesus. They didn't have the out of the box thinking that the bankers did. They were starting with the wrong base. They were starting with the metal. The bankers started with paper. They started with paper. They didn't turn it into gold. They disappeared gold. They took it out of the equation. Put paper in there, issued it, got charged interest on that paper, and that's when they went to town. And England went to town too. Because what the King of England did with this ability, 
He took over the whole world. This little island sitting off the coast of Europe. Alright? They're not. I mean, in a rugby match, after it's over, and you got them tanked up on alcohol, they're as dangerous as any people on this planet. But one-on-one, you know, we can all go to the mat with a knife and a stone and a gun and go after each other. What enabled England and what gave its advantage was the bankers. Ray gave them the credit because they now printed money. He could raise his name, the greatest name in the world. Go all over the world, blah, 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 take this over, take this over, take this over. This was called imperialism. And basically, it was thuggery fueled on credit. Alright? Now, history books have been written. What are we talking about? Uh, open markets. Free markets. Free markets. Well, how the British did free markets is they went to, for example, Turkey. Sure, so, hey, listen, we don't, you know, stay out of our way. We've got a little empire going here, we're trading, we've got our money and stuff like that, you know. The British go, no, no, this is, uh, we went in. We went in. Church go, hey, we're cool. You know, we got our bombings, we're, we're cool. Let's go. We went in. Boom! Set out a navy, blew it open. It's now known as uh, open markets. All right? They went to China. China said, hey, we're cool. We don't want, uh, we don't want any of your paper. In fact, if you're going to trade with us, we want silver. We're silver rates. And the British were used to dealing with people who told them to Besides, silver cost them money. They had to go on the open market and buy it if they went to China. Silks, teas, and porcelains. Which they did. Which they did. So what they did was, they forced the Chinese to take over. Which they grew in India, sent a few boats over, brought them back. A couple gunboats up the river, took the Chinese out. Free trade, globalization. So what you have in effect now is globalization is the end result of British imperialism. Who has the advantage of this is the advantage of position. The closer you are to credit, the more able you are to manipulate it, the more able you are to leverage it, those are the ones who are banned by it. The farther away you are from the thumb of credit, the more disadvantageous you are. And you end up as you're poor. That's really what it is. I mean, you can work hard here, 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 here. The amount of profit you make is very much dependent on your proximity to credits and thumb. So, this is what happened. That's really the story of Britain, its power, and they took over the world. Alright? I mean, they basically took over the world. And they did this, it was, it began to work very well until the middle of the 19th century. And at the middle of the 19th century, in 1850, England ruled the world. It was really true that the sun never set on its empire. But by 1870, 20 years later, England's balance of trade went negative. Never go positive, you know, basically went negative at that time. By the end of the 19th century, they, the ships that they had, their huge navy, all of a sudden you had metal ships, they had to put metal ships out there. Their whole navy infrastructure that before had to be replaced. Cost them a fortune. Cash flow down. England was on the fade. Gone. Alright? This is the part of the time the price wave started. 1896. 1896, England's time as an empire is over. We are now in the price wave. Alright? The ascension of that price wave can be marked with America's rise as a world power. What happened is, the bankers in England realized that their horse, their carriage, their caravan of wealth and power was disappearing. It was the English name. It was English empire. So they decided to move the thing lock, stock, and barrel over the United States. And they did. 1913, they did two things in the United States. First of all, they created the federal income tax. Americans never had an income tax. Now, all of us today think of an income tax as something like normal. It's like breathing. Huh? But it's normal in the same way that a junkie considers his heroin or a methadone addict normal. Because you need it. You are unused to life without it. It's not normal. It has become usual and apparently normal. So this is what happened. They moved it over to the United States, put it in income tax because they knew that they were going to do the Federal Reserve, a central bank like England had. All right? 
basically a replica. Debt-based money, and America's going to have to do this debt. And they did it by putting first an income tax system that would take care of the debts that Americans would pay. December 23rd, in midnight, all Congress and Senate's on vacation. Three men voted. Three men voted. Federal Reserve Alright? The power to coin money that's been handed in the Constitution to the U.S. Treasury was handed off to a private group of bankers. Now, what I want you to do when you follow this is to follow intent. Because intent will always lead you to the truth. Once you understand that person's intent, you're going to understand why he acted that way and why things turned out that way. The bankers' intent is always wrong. Always wrong. Always will be. Government's intent is power. Always was. Always will be. But government is a much more fragmented being than bankers. Bankers are rather pure. Alright? Government is a collection of interests that changes over time. The one constant that has remained, however, in that power base of government is the military. What people don't realize is how great the American experiment really was and how revolutionary it was. What Professor Fekete said this morning about the government being more important than democracy is really bad. I mean, democracy is the will of the people. I mean, Jesus Christ, the will of the people. They'll gas people, they'll hang people, they'll do whatever they want. You can get people to do anything you want them to do. The will of the people is capable of good and evil. But the concept of limited government, which was put forth in the U.S. Constitution, was something brand new. Why would government ever want to limit itself when its intent is power and more power and more power and more power at another one? The reason why the American experiment was so extraordinary, and I think it's great that I'm talking about this on the 4th of July, we should be talking about it. The reason why it was extraordinary was the men who rose up against the tyranny of England were revolutionaries and they knew it. They knew the sting of tyranny. And they knew that they were going to put in motion a new government. And they wanted at the outset to shackle that government. To put a chain on it. You can only go so far. To put a yard around that dog. To keep it from going after the people. And they gave the people inalienable rights. That was truly revolutionary. It was so revolutionary, they don't exist anymore. Except the words of paper. In a very tangible sense. And the Federal Reserve, the creation of the Federal Reserve is just another example of that. They handed over to a group of private bankers the charge to coin America's money. And they did. 1913, the Federal Reserve was put in place. This is 95 years later. In 95 years, the U.S. dollar has lost 95% of its purchasing power. There's a certain symmetry to that. I find it, at least. 95 years, it's lost 95% of its purchasing power. Hey, boys, girls, five more years ago. I mean, added up so far. So where are we and how do we get here? 1913, Federal Reserve Act, okay? One of the things that a credit-based system does, and this is why it's so popular, it's so popular, because money is very hard to come by. Money is hard to come by. Wealth, wealth, that's what it is. It's stored up wealth. Why? To get it, you have to work for it. I mean, the dispensation of the Bible has a cut and we have not been released, so we shall earn by the sweat of our brow. I mean, I'm a hippie. All right. I don't like the sweat. All right? You got it. To do something. You have to produce something. All right? You have to get a loan. You have to do work. You have to do something. Take a risk. Then you get income. Take a risk. That's an entrepreneur's thing. Business people. All right? But the truth of the matter is this. Here we are. What credit does, it's wonderful because they flood it. They flood it out. They throw it out like chum in the water. Like fishermen in the water. All right? Except it's not real food. It's not real money. It's credit. It's a promise of money. And all of us in the water... Okay? Like seagulls. And I scrambling for it. It's more, it's more, it's more, it's more. All right? 
Check them out. We're going to turn into money. It's like venture capitalists. Two of the ten deals are going to come back. Eight of them are going to go bad. And one of them, if you're lucky, is going to make you rich. That's how the bankers do it. They don't love savings. They used to. They used to keep a little bit there called savings, gold. All right? Glass-Steagall happened. When the Depression happened, no, you could put debt in it to qualify as capital in your base. Isn't that really incredible? You don't even need What do you mean? I mean, what the hell? What's the 3%, 10% before anyway? Just numbers. Just numbers. Just numbers. So what happened is, is that they put so much credit out there, everybody likes to bet, everybody wants to get rich. So what they had was a feeding fence, just like we had with subprime housing. Flip a house, buy a piece of property, 10% down, doubles in a year. Take your winnings off the table and put it in the end because the leverage is to go up. Alright? This is the same thing that Blackstone does. This is the same thing that Carl's Carlisle Group does. This is the same thing that service management does. They take what money they have, borrow most of it, go take a company, but instead of putting on a new roof and a Corian and a grand tabletop and a swimming pool out back and a you know, whatever you want. They uh what is it? They load it on the debt. Alright? Sell us some of its assets and then get out of town. They flip corporations. And the corporation will never be the same. But what happened? When the credit hit the United States, the US character, which is really a bunch of expansion. I mean, I live in the United States, alright? And we don't know about it. It's like fish don't know water's wet. We think we're normal. We're not. We're just Americans, um, as Americans are. Every country has a different character, different nationality, different characteristics in the way of being. And it pretty much runs because you grow up there. You start thinking who you are, that's how you think, and that's how it is. So the American character was always one of the expansion. Back, back, back. 1920s came along, so when we have bubbles, do we have bubbles? All right. I mean, we don't have normal bubbles. We got major bubbles. I mean, we can outbubble and. <coughs> so that's what happened. 1920s, stock market bubble, huge. Collapse credit, bang. Debt. Couldn't handle the debt. Couldn't handle the debt. Years ago, when I first started, when I first met the professor, I had a few questions. I always remember his answer. His, his, he, he was so daunting. He, he really was. I, I, just read, I said the thing, you know, saying, boy, this is an article. And he wrote me back and he said, what is your interest in these matters? I mean, I was daunting. I had, I had some curiosity. I never know. That I don't know as much as I did. It came out of sheer curiosity about how this happened. I didn't know. I mean, I thought I knew. I, I thought I knew as much about economics as people know about God. You go to the church that you're close to. I call it off-the-shelf thinking. And we all engage off-the-shelf thinking until we become very curious about what's actually going on. And the only time we become curious about what's going on is when doubt enters our mind about what we're being told. And as long as you follow, you'll never doubt. Because someone's not answering. And it's all right to follow if you have doubts. Because your doubts are being answered to your satisfaction, right or wrong. So what happened is, in the 1930s, we left it out so far and it collapsed. The machine stopped. What people don't realize is what the depression, what really the depression was. Business cycles did not happen until the bankers came into business. There was no business cycle in the medieval ages. <coughs> business cycles came in when they started putting credit out, and it got too much. It got contracted, up and down, contraction, expansion, contraction, expansion. All right. It's when they get out of hand that things become in trouble. They get excessive. Well, you look at the, where we are now. Two years ago, you asked those boys on Wall Street, is this excessive? The guy goes, no! I made a billion dollars last year! <laughs> it's not excessive. How can you make a billion dollars out of nothing? It wasn't excessive. They never know it's excessive. They never know the ones running it. And the bankers are running the game.
We are now at the end of the game. I would say we're five years. Five years. Maybe longer. I can't tell anymore. You know? I mean, the way I used to, I, I looked at, at the professor, it's like a, a structural engineer. He had training. He knew stress. He knew load bearing. He knew how much cement. He, how much, he knew how much rebar you had to put in the bridge. And he looked at the bridge that they were constructing, the biggest bridge forever, you know, a lot of fanfare about it. And he goes, God, where's the rebar? Why cement? No rebar. You know? And everybody said, oh, man, we don't need rebar anymore. This is great cement. Look at this. Got cement there. Screw the rebar. And the professor goes, where's the rebar? All right? Far longer before that I started wondering about rebar. I came along real late to the party. But because of people like him, mainly because of him, I began looking at things in a certain way, and I realized the importance of rebar. I realized the importance of gold. I realized what it did to the system, and what its absence has done to us, and will do to us, and is about to bring it home now. What I see happening is that we are in the end game. We are at the end of the great price wave. I would say five years into it. And one, what I would like to explain to you is the groups that have done this, all right? The reason why Roosevelt made it illegal for America's own gold, Professor touched on this, and it's absolutely true. And, and as I listen to him more and more, his truths become more expansive. They become more obvious to me. He wants to put gold back in our hands. He wants to put gold back in the hands of sailors, of people, widows and orphans. All right? Because he wants us to have the ability to choose whether to put that gold at work or to pull it back. Because that provides a natural balance to expansion. It provides a balance to the expansion. Now, if you ask some guy from Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns or Goldman Sachs about balance to expansion, they get real uptight. What do you mean balance to expansion? I take a dollar and I leverage it 45 times. You think he's looking for balance? No. He's looking for leverage. And you take balance away. You take gold out of the system. You've got unlimited opportunity. Wow. Unlimited opportunity. And what people don't realize is that unlimited opportunity includes disaster. As well as prosperity. And we're about to come to disaster. This is an amazing system they created. The banking system. They created it was a fraud. They took money out of the middle. They gave it a promise of return. Certainty of debt. And as long as you stay ahead of the yield curve, you're doing all right. In imperialistic times, that meant you were chopping up more countries than you were paying. You, 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 it was to the free armies for. In times of globalization, it meant you had to expand faster than your debt load that you're carrying catches up with you. And what happened is, they thought Asia was going to be the next market. But they didn't realize that the Asians are savings based mentality. There's a yin-yang dynamic going on here, all right? The West is very open, out, moving, 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 moving. The East is tradition, very interior, holding, 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 stable, stable, stable. And the truth of the matter is, you both basically need these in yourself, in your life, to get balanced. But we're not looking for balance, generally, we're just looking for what we want. And the West system of economics has always had to be expansion. I used to wonder about it. Why do we have to expand at a certain rate? I mean, what's wrong with kicking back? I'm a hippie when I ask that. Why can't we just kick back? Well, the reason why you can't kick back in a credit-based system is you created debt. And the debt has to be repaid. The debt that you created before has to be repaid. That's why the debt markets are so enormously larger than equity markets. Equity markets is coming on, promise, new promise, new promise, new promise. Debt markets is a result of the creep of what is accrued from previous equity markets, from previous lenders. 
We've been in this game 300 years. All right. There is a uh, very interesting book I read. I mean, a, a paper I just read, and it's put out by this uh, this uh, somebody from the University of Maryland and somebody from uh, Harvard, and um, it talks about defaults, and that's where we are today. I believe that our monetary system is on the verge of serial defaults. All right. And like depressions, we're not used to this. Default is something that happens down to us. Argentina every once in a while. Mexico every once in a while. Right. Asia, hot money went in and out. What they don't realize is in 1973, the United States had a default. We defaulted on our, on our gold obligations. That is a default. You didn't have to restructure debt because we just said, screw you. We ain't paying. You don't have to restructure anything. We just took the back of it. That was a default. And that default got us to here. We are now at the point where we've already played that card. And where we go from here is the default of our sovereign and domestic debt. One of the things that this paper said was this. Defaults come in waves. Come in waves. Alright? And one of the things that exacerbates a wave of defaults, currency defaults, sovereign debt defaults, is inflation. I passed out a piece of paper that has the current growth of monetary aggregates, inflation rates. Stunning. I mean, if you've got no balance, no need to balance, if you have no constraints, why not print as much paper as you can? Your neighbor is. Your neighbor is. And unless you debase the euro, the yen is going to have an advantage in your backyard. It's a race to the bottom. It's a race to worthlessness. And who gets there first? They think they're going to win. That's how insane this is. But once you lie at the headwaters, once you call the devil God, once you call credit money, Everything's a slam dunk. Everything becomes a detail. A slam dunk. You don't have to make excuses for anything. You've already got it. And that's what we are. We're here from all over the world. And I can say, truthfully, I think, that nobody in this room is responsible for what's going to happen. I don't think it was you who did it, or you, or you who did the same thing. No matter what country you're from, doesn't matter how much gender you are, no matter what you are. It's something that's happening to us. And we're going to experience it collectively. We have never had anything like this before. Never. Never. No one ever got away with fraud on this level. No one ever convinced the world that printing paper, giving credit away was money. But they've done it. And it's a fait accompli. Can't argue about it. You can't adjust it. In fact, I would say that if you're a paper boy, make some money. But you better get out of the game quickly before the door closes, before the house shuts down, because they're not in control of the game anymore. I presented a paper last year in February 2007 called Prime Vulture. And I predicted a collapse of credit markets, collapse of global financial markets, stock markets. I was laughing, I started looking at it, and I dreamed of my little pitch site. Real estate is going to fall 40 to 80 percent. It's already fallen that in the United States. San Diego is about 45 percent. Right. <coughs> You're out of the game. Your equity markets haven't fallen yet. Trust me, they're going to. You haven't had a currency collapse yet. Trust me, they're going to. We are on the edge of something we've never experienced before. And I think what, it, what I'm looking at now, sort of like in my own mind, my own thinking, my own projections, is the question of defaults. Sovereign default. What is this going to mean when the United States defaults on its debt? And it can default on its debt by hyperinflation, if it goes that far. We don't know. No one ever plans on going to hyperinflation. No one ever plans 
in going into a deflationary depression. It's just something that happens. That junk never planned on becoming an addict. It's just all of a sudden that I was good. Woke up the next morning and started shaking. Instead of thinking of going to work, he reached for the phone. Didn't have any money, he saw his mom's TV. Happens like that. Happens like that. It gets away from you that quick. People like to think that the central banks are in control of this. They're not. They are riding a locomotive that is out of control. And all of us are in one of the trains behind us. That's my words of hope. Thank you very much, Daryl. Uh, I open the floor to... I've learned about questions. Question. That I don't know about timing. And I wrote somebody an answer. They said, well, how long do you think we have? And I said, you know, there's a lot of guesses out there. And someone's going to be right. But that's what it was, it was a guess. For those of us who know the fragility of the system, you start to think, well, it's going to fall any moment. I mean, you begin, you re it's like that bridge in Minneapolis that finally went down. They've known for 20 years that thing was like this, right? And, and, or the, the levees in New Orleans. Let's say you're a, a structural engineer and you've looked at it and, and you thought, wow, the marshlands are changing, you know, a hurricane comes in, it could just blow this place away. And, and people ask you, what, what are the odds? Well, that's what it is, it's odds. You don't know. What I do know for a certainty is that it will happen. I don't know when. And I don't know how it's going to happen either. Truly, I don't. You don't know if it's going to go into a deflation, de depression, without a hyperinflation or inflation. But they're playing with fire. And it's already lit. You don't know where the wind's going to come in, what's going to flare it up. You don't know if all of a sudden it's going to hit a, the, 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 the kerosene tank that somebody hidden away in the back room. They don't know it either. They don't know it either. So, my guess is like everyone else's. It's a guess. Yeah. Uh, you have participated in uh, Franklin Sanders' survey on hyperinflation. Franklin Sanders is a, a newsletter editor in Tennessee. Uh, the title of the newsletter is Money Changer. It has been around for, I would say, up to 20 years. It's one of the better ones, uh, uh, in my opinion. And uh, uh, Daryl and I also had a little input. Uh, Franklin invited us to contribute, and there were other interesting contributions. So the burning question he asked was, are we going to have hyperinflation in the world? And uh, I, I would like to ask you to comment uh, on this. You, you have studied the question, you have looked at the various answers. What is your feeling? Well, my first response to that question is, uh, I'm 63, but I don't think I learned a lot in these years. Because my answer when I read it, he, Franklin sent me this question. What are your ideas about hyperinflation? When do you think it will happen? What are the possibilities? And I quip off a few words and a few thoughts and a few conclusions and send them off to Franklin. All right? So I'm flying over here to meet the professor, see the professor in Budapest, and I get Franklin's new newsletter about, I didn't know this was, I knew he was going to ask some questions. All right? And there's my little answer, you know, short, to the point, you know, just I tossed it off, followed by a very detailed analysis by Professor Fekker, followed by an equally detailed answer by James Turk of Gold is Money, all right? And I then realized, holy smokes, I was in great company, but I didn't come off well. <laughs> I didn't come off well. My answer about hyperinflation is we're truly playing with fire. We are truly playing with fire. In, in, in 2006, Lawrence Kolokoff, 
wrote a, a article for the St. Louis Review, Federal Reserve Bank. And in it, he unequivocally stated that the United States Federal Reserve is pursuing monetary policies that have caused hyperinflation in 20 countries this century. Boom! All right? This is the Fed. The Fed said this. He didn't say it's going to happen, but he said we're pursuing monetary policies that have led to hyperinflation in 20 countries. And, and what you have to realize is that the dislocation this is going to cause. All of a sudden, your money becomes worthless. All of a sudden, that one and a half trillion dollars of U.S. paper, I don't know how much the Chinese have, 1.2 trillion, yeah, yeah, goes down to nothing. Goes down to, and who's going to give you any money then? Who's going to borrow your money? You have no savings. You have no productive capacity. Your, your value in the community was that you had an IOU at the, at the uh, corner tent, at the Tesco. And you, you bought so much stuff that everybody kept extending credit to the local Tesco. Because, man, you were yeah, you having parties and you had people coming over, so you're, you were constantly buying supplies. I, I think, and we discussed this at the last Gold Standard University, about possibilities of uh, hyperinflation with, in conjunction with deflationary depression. And I know we're going into deflation, but I define deflation as a collapse of demand. Alright? Collapse of demand. Prices generally fall when you have a collapse of demand because prices they try and do it. But you can also have a collapse of demand with rising prices. You can have a collapse of demand in the United States and gas still goes high. Corn still goes high. Food still goes high. These are situations that we've never encountered before. Why? We've never been here before. We have never been here before. The past. It's like the boys on Wall Street, all those computer models. You know, they're going, well, I mean, we didn't see this possibility. It's got seven billion dollars of institutional money riding on it. We didn't see this possibility. There is not a paradigm, there is not a past, there's not a model that models this. There have been similar situations, and that's all they are is similar. I'd like to invite uh, questions on that topic. Hyperinflation, are we going to have it, or is it going to be deflation, or struggle between these two destructive forces? So please, uh, Nathan. Well, I'll, I'll comment on that too, and I'm going to ask a, a question about uh, the lecture, but uh, actually the, uh, the deflation, uh, hyperinflation debate, uh, your own work, Professor, and also a comment from um, uh, Bob Landis, uh, where he said the world moves too quickly now with the internet and institutions. It moves too quickly for either inflation or uh, uh, hyperinflation to take place. We'll just have some depth of the, the monetary system will be into uh, a de facto gold or silver or, or bimetal uh, standard again. There won't be time for the plates up out. The, the system will simply seize up. Uh, when a panic breaks out somewhere that the Federal Reserve can't, uh, can't solve or the other central banks can't solve, and it'll be over in 24 hours or 48 hours. Uh, I think that's the more likely, you know, based on your own writing, Professor, and, and the other essays that I've read, I think that's the more likely uh, event. There's going to be time for either of those classic uh, alternatives to play out. Yes? I think that the saying actually using the words inflation or deflation to apply to the whole situation maybe not, uh, not really grasping it in terms of, I think that you're going to see both. Then you're going to see inflation of some of some uh, asset classes and deflation of others, not asset classes. You're going to have inflation in some areas and deflation in other areas. And you've already seen that. You've seen you have seen destruction of capital. You have seen money supply contraction in, based in certain asset classes. And you have seen other um, yeah, uh, oil and other things inflate. So I think you're going to continue to see that. And I personally think that the way you uh, you chop it up is to say, okay, where did they pour that counterfeit money in? There you're going to see inflation in those assets where they pour into it is where it's going to pour out of. So you're going to see inflation in those areas where it poured in. And so that's what you saw in property. They poured 
they inflated the property market, now they deflated the property market. And uh, in terms of prices for things, it, it, it comes, <coughs> well, the effects come in terms of necessity. So those things that are most necessary, that those are the things that will inflate faster, and those that things that are not necessary items may not inflate at all, then the, the, the prices of boats might go down and people don't want to leave boats anymore. You know. So that's how I think. Yes, please follow, follow, follow that, follow that uh, thinking. There has to be a crash at the end of that inflation. There has to be there has to be a price level that just nobody can meet, or the average people cannot meet, or their consumption will disappear. There was a great great uh, movie flying in the internet. Dutch people made a couple of years ago, talking about the interest rates of uh, uh, euro euro dollar interest rates. Basically, it was it was closing in the United States, breaking up in 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 Europe, or no, in Asia, in Asia and Europe. At the end of the working day in Europe, the dollar crashed. And the exchange rate that they predicted the crash of the dollar was 167. So 167 dollars a, a euro, basically. And we almost, almost on it. And, it, and, it, and the, they made this movie, the, the title was, I think, 24 hours. And they made this movie uh, two, two years ago, basically. And there was two or three Dutch people, economists, sit together and, and with the journal the journalists, and they're trying to come up with, uh, with the scenarios, how it would play down. And basically, uh, at the end of the movie, that was basically the, 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 the storyline, and that final, final coming out of the, of the answer to your question was basically, the lady who wants to go home with the taxi had to pay with a cigarette. Because no one, no one was accepting his, no one was accepting her cash, basically, at the end of the, at the end. The bar player. Yeah. You change rules for rules. Rules serves as money. So that, that will happen. That, that will happen. Do you have the money changer with you here? It doesn't matter. It's on our uh, website somewhere. But oh. I don't know. It's, it's oh, if it is, then we can get. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like to tell you that you happen to be in the country which has the dubious <laughs> distinction of the greatest hyperinflation ever in terms of the number of zeros attached to the number one on a banknote. In this country, in the year 1946, they printed actual banknotes which were uh, 1,000 billion. Uh, actually, billion in Europe means something different. Yeah. So. And the picture of that banknote is in uh, Frank Sanders' Money Changer, the latest issue which we were talking about, and. Um, um, it can be looked up at the internet, perhaps somebody will be kind enough to bring up that page and then we uh, can show it to you for your benefit. If I may be allowed to add my uh, penny's worth of wisdom, and that is, uh, uh, I, I will I'll invite further questions after that. About this question, deflation or hyperinflation? I would even call it hyperdeflation because I am thinking in terms of the black hole of zero interest, which is the concept is borrowed from physics. It has a great hole. Once you get close enough to that, that black hole, you won't be able to resist the uh, pull and you will fall into it. And my starting point is Daryl's idea that credit and debt or money and debt or the dividing line between the two has been obscured by this big step of bringing in central banking into the world. And this is how the dynamics works. Of course the central bank can pump all the money which is physically possible into the system. 
But that's only one force which is acting. Another force is the destruction of value, the, destruc the destruction of uh, that. And this is something which for the first time we can see with our own eyes in the world. And this is what we couldn't see a couple of years ago because it wasn't obvious, but now it is obvious. You read it in the newspapers, you read it on the internet, you have numbers attached to it. And whether these numbers understate or overstate the case doesn't matter. The fact is that that is being destroyed. So it's like a tank. Water is pouring in from the central bank, in this case the Federal Reserve. But there's a hole, there's a sink, and money is flowing out. And these are happening at variable rates. So there's a contest. Now unless you control the uh, destruction of debt, or wealth, or assets, because these are assets of the banking system. Banking system as such doesn't have any other assets such as yeah. gold or silver. Yeah. <laughs> they, they threw them away. So that's all they have. Now this is being destroyed. The question, is it enough to control the spigot which is pumping money into the system? Or you have to control both? Now I'm suggesting it to you that they won't be able to control the, the rate of destruction of that. And that's like a spiral. And this is why I am a little bit inclined to believe that we are going to face a hyper-deflation rather than a hyper-inflation. But perhaps it's even better to say that it's going to be a mixture of the two, because those commodities which are absolutely essential for survival in a modern society, foodstuffs, energy, and a few others, are going to give you the symptoms of a hyperinflation just to fool those who can be fooled. And only few people will be able to watch the other end of the tank, which is the destruction of the debt. And that's going to deplete. In any case, Call it an optical illusion if you like, but the scarcity of money will be the general feature of the thing. Now they will urge the Fed to... And at one point the Fed will not be physically able to print those banknotes, except by putting more zeros after the one. And watch that happening. It's already happening in Europe, <coughs> where I was very surprised to read an article on the internet which stated, with facts provided also, that people already started sorting out the Euro banknotes according to the issue of the bank. Now, you need a magnifying glass or even a microscope to find the little sign on the banknote which will tell you which central bank issued it. But people did get wise to it and they are getting their magnifying glasses out and they are hoarding those <laughs> And it's very interesting to watch the uh, central banks, how they react to it. They deny this. No, no, we are going to exchange it on par. We just forget it, who issued it. It's not important. They can do it to some extent. But after a point, when people, well, this is Gresham's law, let's not uh, beat around the bush, that's the name of the game. People are holding those notes which they think will survive longer than those which will fall by the wayside. So they are not 
accepting or they are not hoarding the Italian, the Greek and a few other uh, Euro notes, but they are hoarding the German and uh, some others. So this is very interesting. I uh, will, I promise I take a few more questions, so let me take two more questions before I close. Yes, Rudy. Just a quick one on the list. There's an M4, I've never heard of M4 before. Uh, as a money measure of money, is that like M3 only broader, or I'm not sure if Carol knows what that is. I just copied it. <laughs> <laughs> but I copied it exactly. Oh, that's right. It even has an expiry date on it. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Wow! I, that was my joke in my writings that that paper money is government issued coupons with in, with uh, expired expiration dates written in invisible ink. And now, hey, are we not getting better? <laughs> it's, it's a certain The last shaman. That's wonderful. Is this a question? I think it's a popular reaction of people who find themselves in uncertain situations and don't know what to do about it. Nationalism. Nationalism. Now, granted, if I were European and I got a little scared, a little spooked, all right, and I heard this, you might find me at night with my flashlight going through and stacking it like that and going spending my other, you know, Italian banknotes or whatever it's called. All right. I, I don't think it's going to go. Ryan right. Hartford is the yeah, night. comment on this question because when I read it, it was also interesting in Sonic, though, it's German again. <laughs> <laughs> but I consider that I read a very interesting book at uh, the beginning of this year, The Wisdom of Crowds, not very popular, but it's an excellent book. And it seems to be one of these expressions of this unconscious wisdom of people in general. Because the basic thing there are the confidence game. Yeah. Still air effects and the confidence game in the Euro is <coughs> deteriorate. So they don't trust as much as they have just a year before. And in, in a logical way, if I approach it, one of the things is simple. When the Euro breaks up, if it breaks up, no one knows. But if it will break up, then the tenants get the Lira back maybe and the Germans get the dark market. And for sure then, that's for sure then. It happened. The euro notes will be exchanged yeah. into lira, and the German print will be exchanged into dollar. So it might be very unconscious of these people, but it might it might come out afterwards as not too 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 stupid. How do you tell that? It's simple. It's 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 a it's a it's a alphabetical character because of Okay. X stands for Italy, I think, German. I have not studied it yet, but there is one. No. Swiss France. So, if that can happen to the Swiss France, it can happen to the Anything. Euro. No. But how old are the Swiss France? Not 40 years. Yeah, pre 1970. Unfortunately, because of time element, I have to close the, the uh, discussion part of it. I just want to leave you with one thought. I am willing to buy your five years. You, you were talking about, well, maybe five years. How long will the dollar be around? I, I am willing to say five. But I want to suggest that this is going to be very controversial and it will not be clear cut. Because what will happen, in my opinion, because of this dynamic side of talking about the spigot and the sink, and the fight before, between the two is the fact that the Fed will be physically, the Federal Reserve will be physically forced to put more and more and more zeros after the ones because if they kept to the maximum uh, 
denomination of whatever it is, like 500 or 1000, whatever it is, then they physically could not print enough notes to satisfy the demand. So there will be more and more and more zeros and people will react by hoarding those Federal Reserve notes which has the fewest zeros. And they will pass on, according to Gresham's law, that's my theory, I may be wrong, but think about it. Gresham's law will force them to get rid of the, those which have lots of zeros after the one as being worthless or being lose, losing value the fastest. So uh, John Exter, who said, hoard Federal Reserve notes, no meant exactly this, the old issues will be more valuable because people will be hoarding that, they will be forced because they, these notes will still retain value more than the newly printed ones. So that, that may be a little help to you to understand what's happening. I don't guarantee that this is the way it will be, but if it's five years, which I'm inclined to believe, then that's what we are going to see. Thank you very much.